Good morning, good morning. Always good chatter in the room. This is good. Um, just to reiterate, I know I, for one, would really appreciate name tags. I just, <laughs> I'm fairly new at the river. Um, I guess within a year, I've been kind of around you all, but or most of you. But once we took the, the masks off, <laughs> I no longer know who you are. So <laughs> if you can, just uh, help us out, those that are a little bit newer. I'm alive. Thank you. And, and that'll, that'll really help. I'm Mike, by the way, one of the worship leaders here at the River, and just um, always grateful for a chance to be able to speak to you all from my heart as I get to preach on occasion. And today, I want to look at a very interesting passage of Scripture. I think it's interesting. I think also along with it, there is an unexpected lesson in this passage. There's a story in the Scriptures about a time when Jesus was hanging out in the temple just watching people. And that actually was not unusual, Jesus being in the temple and just kind of observing. That was kind of the, uh, the uh, thing that Jesus liked to do. In the Gospel of Mark, um, let's just say he wasn't going around offering his own confessions. He had a purpose here of observing. And his, observe, his observations usually turn into stern teaching moments and illustrations for his parables, much like what we're going to get into today. As a side note, as I was rereading this this week, I thought about how would that go for us. I don't know if you ever think about that, but we are a Christian community. And what if Jesus rode into Manhattan and found a little cozy corner in the back of our church during worship one day and was just observing what was going on, how we're going about church, how we care for one another, the things we're saying. Does that thought make you nervous? I think when I first thought about that, I started to get a little nervous, like maybe, maybe we need to be thinking about really deeply that we're, we're doing things the Jesus way around here. But in this particular parable, Jesus was actually positioned near the offering box, which I think was very interesting. Does that start to make you a little bit more nervous <laughs> as you're going up to the offering box? We, we do have a physical box in the back of the room, if you didn't know that. Uh, but Jesus is just kind of hanging out there. Uh, I think that probably would make our attendance either go up or down. I'm not quite sure yet. I haven't decided. But we're currently in a sermon series on the unexpected Jesus. We're taking a look at how parables were taught, that Jesus used parables specifically to teach about the kingdom of God, and mostly in unexpected ways. That's certainly the case in the text that we're going to dive into in just a moment. And before I, we look at the text, I just want to offer a prayer. So if you will just pray with me for a minute. God of light, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit may be speaking to us this morning. And as we encounter your life-giving word, may we leave this place changed and inspired. Your servants are listening. We pray in your son's name. Amen. The parable of the widow's might from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. It says, text will be up here. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave, they all gave out of their, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything 
all she had to live on. In just these few short verses, we get a seemingly heartfelt scene of a woman who sacrificed all that she had for God and the church. And if we kept our biblical microscope focused in on this short passage in Mark 12, we would probably spend the morning talking about the blessing of giving and the sin of greed and the reward of sacrifice. And to be sure, those are worthwhile lessons. I think you would agree. But in 100% of the time, anytime I've ever heard this passage preached, it has always been about stewardship, giving, and sacrifice. Maybe you've heard that too, this parable of the widow's mite. A mite, by the way, is a Jewish coin, about 1 64th of a day's wage. And in today's term, it would be worth about an eighth of a cent, and the, women, the widow put in two of those in the collection box that day. Very little bit. From this vantage, you almost have to read the parable with an empathetic tone. We are led as readers to look on in wondrous appreciation for such an act of sacrifice, which we should also emulate. You can almost hear Jesus narrate it that way for the disciples as they watched from the sidelines. Probably shaking his head in amazement, the rabbi could have added, now go and do likewise. But what if I told you this morning that this parable has very little to do about any of that? There are multiple clues in the text which point to this being about something other than giving and sacrifice. If we could have heard Jesus' tone that day, it probably would have been one of criticism and even anger and pity for the woman. This parable wouldn't have ended in a go and do likewise kind of manner, but more of a what a shame kind of critique. The broader context here is that Jesus was spending lots of time in the temple challenging and questioning the leaders of the day. Even if you remember, one day he was flipping over tables in righteous anger for what he saw. In fact, it's pretty significant to me that he spent so much time here in what would be his last four days on earth. You remember, this is just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and he heads straight for the temple. And in those last four days of his ministry, he spends time in the place where the righteous and the religious were gathering. He's not out on the countryside evangelizing. He's not running around doing last-minute healings or exorcisms. He's right here in the church. I think that should tell us something. So maybe for a little bit more context, let's zoom out a little bit more, go three verses back to verse 38. It says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace, in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers these men will be punished most severely. Did you catch that? They devour widows' houses. They being the religious leaders. The central figure in our parable is a widow. And that seems to be a very specific detail if this was just a story about a sweet old lady making a sacrifice. Because see, any poor person could have walked the aisle and made their offering in that collection box and made the point of how we should emulate giving. But here, she's a widow. The poor and the widowed, as you probably know, were the least protected in this society, left with no one to speak 
on their behalf. In fact, a woman in a patriarchal society, one who has lost their husband, no less, is about the lowest of the low. Here it says that the religious institution and its leaders devoured widows' houses. It sounds really harsh, doesn't it? There isn't really consensus on what that means, but it's obvious that there was a temple system that was in place where even the least fortunate and the most vulnerable of society felt obligated to give even to their very last cent. The passage says the woman put in all that she had to live on. As a reader, we're left to assume then in just a couple days' time that she probably would have died, left with nothing else to live off of her very last two coins. And yet nobody rushes as she walks that aisle from uh, help keeping her from giving the last of what would be her income. This was a brand of religion that looked nothing like the kingdom of God. And Jesus was observing that. Jesus was drawing attention to that for his disciples. Perhaps the temple system wasn't always that way, but step by step and little by little, it inch closer to what has mutated into something toxic and even dangerous. One of the themes in the Gospel of Mark is falling asleep. You'll remember when Jesus was in the garden, he asked his disciples to stay awake, don't fall asleep. And they did this three times. They fell asleep, probably to match the number of times that Peter also denies Jesus. There's kind of a theme of them kind of missing the point in the Gospel of Mark. The early church would have made these connections. Mark was actually written about 40 years after Jesus' death. Jesus died, they believe, in either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. The Gospel of Mark was written just before 70 A.D. If you know anything about history, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. as part of the Jewish revolt against the, Romes, the Roman church. Or, I'm sorry, about, against Rome. So they would have read this gospel fresh off the pages in this context. Falling asleep in destructive religious systems would have been first and foremost in their mind. See, when religion goes unchecked and the church sleepwalks through its ministry, it can morph into this brand of Christianity that looks pretty counter to what Christ lived and proclaimed. More specifically, when the church becomes defined solely by its insular programming and capital campaigns to build bigger and fancier buildings and its niche social groups, charismatic pastor personalities, and all the like, it may have fallen asleep in its mission to be a force for good in the world. It may have become so enthralled with itself that it forgets why it even existed in the first place, to be a conduit through which Christ can heal the world. Corey Ten Boone writes in her book, The Hiding Place, about an encounter she had with her father. Many of you might have read the book or seen the movie. It's a brave story about Corey's family who risked their lives trying to save their Jewish neighbors from German Nazis during World War II. And one day, Corey and her sister pulled her father aside and started to question him. And they asked, why there were so many of their Christian neighbors that were siding with the Nazis? It's a fair question. Corey was confused. She said, they are part of the same church we are. 
And her father gave a wise answer. He said, just because a mouse is in the cookie jar doesn't make it a cookie. I like that. That's a clever way of uh, calling what it is, right? You see, we seem to know all too well this other brand of religion, even in our own country, too motivated by political and monetary gain, willing to saddle up with the empire if it means a better position or a social status. Religion, that is the fleshing out of our deepest, truest identity, should be continually calling to question the systems of this world, to keep them in check rather than in partnership. You know this, but this week a rich man spent $44 billion to purchase a social media platform. All the while, the global hunger crisis rages uncontrollably. And our political system, a playground for the elite, really is threatening to overturn Roe v. Wade, a move that would take away constitutional rights that women have enjoyed since the 1970s, which gives them control over their own bodies in early pregnancy. These are headlines from just this week. I think these are systems of a quote-unquote Christian nation that has traded valuing neighbor and other for the profit of financial gain and political power. Maybe you remember, maybe you didn't know, but nearly 300 years after Rome killed Jesus, what happened? Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity and empire holding hands at last. I think that's what Jesus was warning us about. The oppressed adopting the values of the oppressor. Jesus' words continue to ring true even today. It's better to lose your religion in hopes that you'll actually find its truest form. I'm going to share with you a modern-day parable that I heard the philosopher Peter Rollins tell. It's about a pastor with a very weird spiritual gift, so hear me out. All right, this is an upright, godly person. As part of his job, means to be praying for people all the time. But every time he prays for people, they lose their faith. Pretty, pretty weird spiritual gift. But it's pretty uncontrollable. He wants to pray, but then that's the effect that it has. And as you can imagine, this is pretty embarrassing for the pastor. So anytime someone asked for prayer, he would pray over them, and immediately they would kind of realize that they don't believe in this religion anymore. They don't believe in God and heaven and demons and angels and, and the like. They stop believing in all of it. Well, the, the pastor is forced to kind of keep this gift to himself. Well, one day he was riding on a train, and just sitting across from him was a businessman who was very anxious and stressed. You could tell because he was strongly holding a drink in one hand with the other. He was shouting to somebody on the other end of the phone. And then eventually, he notices that the pastor sitting in front of him is reading the Bible. And after the phone call, he says to the pastor, oh, you're, I see you're a religious man. Is that right? He said, yes. Yes, I'm, I am. The man says, well, I am too. In fact, it's faith that keeps me together most days in this stressful life that I hold in my work and my uh, everyday life. You could tell I'm also dealing with anger issues by the conversation that I just had. But I go to church on Sunday morning and I go to prayer meeting on Wednesday night and, and this really gets me by to survive this crazy world that I'm in. 
The pastor had sympathy for the man, so he says, well, can I pray for you? The man says, certainly. So the pastor prays, and as soon as they both open their eyes, you guessed it, the man says, well, this faith stuff, this religion, it's useless. It makes no sense to me anymore. I can't really believe any of it any longer. Well, he would go on and he would stop attending church and doing all the religious stuff. The man no longer had his faith to lean on for what would be a life of crisis. So he gets to the point of realizing he needs to start doing something about his life. He needs to take a real serious look. He probably needs to change his job. He needs to put some serious work into his relationships that have become tainted. Maybe he actually needs to find something to do more worthwhile with his time and invest in that. And slowly and gradually, the man begins to change his life until he becomes a new person altogether. Well, a few years went by, and one day this businessman runs into the pastor, and he immediately goes up to him and begins to cry, and he says, Pastor, Pastor, thank you for helping me find my faith. It's really an interesting parable. But I believe it kind of gets at the heart of what Jesus was after here. I think it's why he spends his remaining days on earth camped out in the church. That the church's brand, if you will, would look less like a business and more like the cross. In another place, Jesus says it this way. If anyone desires to come after me, let her deny herself, take up her cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save her life will lose it, and whoever loses her life for my sake will find it. Deny, take up, losing one's life in order to find. Paul says it this way, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge And if I have a faith that can even move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul knew that when we get down to it, love was really the key ingredient to all of it. There really is no worthwhile religion or spiritual practice if not wholly infused with Christ-like love. It's made me wonder recently, what if the church saw the body of Christ as encompassing the whole world. I know I kind of grew up with this metaphor as, as the body of Christ being a select few membership, those that have signed some membership pad at a church. But what if it encompassed the whole world with Christ as the head and everyone making up the body? How would that change our sense of responsibility to those around us? So that Everyone is playing a part, and when there is hurt and when there is pain in the body, it also affects us. You see, it's hard to be isolated and become insular when you realize you need everyone else around you to be the fullest and most complete form of yourself. In closing, I want to draw our attention to one last part of the parable. I think it's the most sobering part of our story of the widow's might. It's what follows. The words are this. As he was going out of the temple, one one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. What an ending for the poor widow here. 
even after she gives her very last, all that she had, in the end, it wouldn't have mattered. She was just doing her part according to the obligations, to the requirements that were placed on her by the system. But the temple was going to be destroyed anyway. For me, this is Jesus' way of saying that this brand of religion, this brand that we know so well even in our day, isn't worth two cents dropped in a bucket by a poor old woman on a random Tuesday. Worthless. Harmful, but worthless. Did you notice how the disciples continued to miss the point? What wonderful buildings. Do you see all the beautiful stones they have here? I read that with a great deal of sarcasm as I'm assuming that the writer intended that, but that's kind of how I hear it. Essentially what Jesus is saying, you can have the most beautiful buildings in the world, you can produce wonderful TV programs, have presidential endorsements, fun and hip social groups, but those aren't the thing. The thing is love. Without that, it's all just loud noise, according to Paul. I do want to call up the band as I close here. And as they come up, I want to just do a check-in with ourselves this morning. See, I believe we all sell out to something. We all give our time and our energy and our resources to systems in this world. We are just built that way as investors, aren't we? The challenge for you and me might be, what brand will you give your all to? What is worthwhile? What is worth affirming for others? And is love central to that brand? It really doesn't matter if the brand ends in the word church. The challenge is the same. That's what Jesus is saying. I believe at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, don't let your religion go unchecked. Don't sleepwalk. We must remain awake, as he was telling his disciples. And for the sake of all the body of Christ, which is the world, everyone that we encounter, not just those here in this room, but those that we're going to see on the sidewalk and in the train. Don't fall asleep, okay? You might have fell asleep in the sermon. Don't fall asleep in life. Well, let's say a prayer as we continue to worship. Lord Christ, you give some strong challenges to the church. And we can read it no other way. You invested so much time at the temple, talking to the religious leaders trying to reform a faith that had centuries of maybe drifting away and missing the point. And we hear that challenge for us this morning. How can we hear it any other way? It's going to take an awakening. It's going to take being awake to our society, to the needs of our community, those within this church and in the community at large. Unless we missed a point like the disciples were continually, Father, we pray that you would allow your spirit to keep us awake. We thank you for the, the avenues that you'll lead this church ministry in. We thank you for the blessings of just having a space and the lights on Sunday after Sunday, but we also know that it's so much more about, than about that. Lead us in the way of love challenge us and sharpen our rough edges 
that we would walk in that way day in and day out for the sake of all the body of Christ. We pray in your son's name. Amen.